Bruce Larson, UPC's senior pastor from 1980 to 1990, passed away on December 15th. In honor of him, we're posting several of his sermons from his years at UPC. A beloved pastor and friend, Reverend Larson impacted countless lives, and his legacy of books and sermons will continue to share his wisdom and love. I hope you brought your Bibles with you, since we don't have Old Testaments in our pew. And you can follow with me as we read this and all of our Sundays here going through Genesis. Hear the quick and living word of God, Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is couching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to Abel, his brother, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength, and you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day away from the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden. And I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will slay me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who come upon him should kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus, we thank you that it's your will and the fathers and the spirits to reveal the mind of the Godhead to us. We thank you for this word, this written word, and for your living spirit now that will open to us the mysteries of who you are, and who we are, and of whom we might become by the power of your Spirit. Help us now to listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You don't have to live very long until you hear the chorus spoken all over. After all I've done for him, after all I've done for her, after all I've done for them, this is what I get. It's what life is all about. 
And our scripture this morning tries to give us an interpretation of why this is such a common human plea. You see, we've said that Genesis is the story of, of who we are and who we can be and what God means for us to be. It's a story about your life and about my life. It's universal. It's right from God. It's his poignant description of life lived either of two ways. And this morning we see something of the rejection and the tragedy which is at the heart of all of us some of the time and some of us all of the time. Now, what does the Bible say right here? Remember last week we said that to understand the Bible, you have to understand the Bible is written in right brain language. It's not conceptual. It's not theological. It's not a verbal book. It's a picture book that says, look, look, look. And as we look and see with the intuitive, creative side of the brain, God is trying to show us something very profound that explains to us the human riddle. Now we begin. The story begins about a rancher and a farmer. Every grade B Western begins about a far the farmers and the ranchers in the land, right? And here we find the first artificial division of the human race, the rancher and the farmer, and there is enmity. Whether it's the color of your skin or the kind of work you do or what your belief is, we find division coming uh, because of our separation from God. Now we find these two sons, the first two of Adam and Eve's many children, we assume. We find uh, Cain and Abel both worshiping. To worship, you must sacrifice. Whether you worship your body, then you must sacrifice time, energy, sweat, pumping iron. If you worship your car, you've got to change the oil and wax it and do all these things. If you worship your family, you're always serving it. So to worship something means you've got to bring sacrifice. So they understand this. They are worshiping the Lord and they bring their sacrifice to the altar. Were you as thrilled as I was this week to discover that, or that here they've discovered a 1200 B.C. altar over in Israel? They think it just possibly might be the altar that Joshua used to sacrifice on as the people crossed over Jordan to claim the promised land. They don't know. It's the earliest altar they've ever found. But you see, mankind has always known that worshiping required an altar and sacrifice. So way back in the beginning, there was worship and there was sacrifice. Now, the two brothers bring their offerings. One, the farmer brings his and the rancher brings his. And we find that one is rejected. And our text comes from the sadness in Cain's heart because his offering is not accepted by God. Note here the personal nature of God. If you, if you worship a machine, there's no way you can reject. If you put the oil in, put the wax on, it, it says thank you. But only if God is a personal God can he say, I like that and I don't like this. So right away we see God is a personal God, our Father, Creator, and he says to one of us, that won't do, and to one he says, that's marvelous, thank you. Now, how do you account for this? How do they know that one's accepted? Well, if you remember Elijah, when he uh, challenged the priests of Baal, they both had their altars and they had their offerings, and fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering where Elijah was, was the priest, and not for, not for Baal. So possibly back in those old days, uh, that was the sign. When God, when fire came down to consume it, God was pleased. We don't know what the sign was. It could have been that. But one offering is obviously pleasing to God and one is not. So we find here this eternal thing where two come to a parent, their uh, eternal parent. And one says, that won't do. And you find this old, old human theme. You remember the Smothers Brothers? 
and how they played on this theme. And one would say, you know, mother always liked you best. Uh, when we got a pet, you got a dog, I got a chicken. And so he went with this. And we all understand something of the human thing of one being accepted and one not being accepted. And that plums the very depth of, of what life is all about. So we find here the first murder. Now, I think it's very illogical. If Cain is upset, why doesn't he kill God if he can? Why does Abel didn't offend him? Abel simply made a pleasing sacrifice. So who does Cain kill? He kills Abel. I've often wondered why in, in stories or in the front page of your newspaper when you read about, you know, triangles, when the irate husband or wife comes in, who do they kill? The third person in the triangle. Why not kill your spouse? They started the whole thing. But life is not logical, and so Cain kills Abel, the first murder. He says, I can't stand it that God likes you best. And the amazing thing is that even murder cannot drive God away from his people. The murderer is there, the blood dripping off his hands, and God has not left him. Even murder does not drive God away from us. Remember we said last week, the myth of the angry God, God's heart is broken. The wrath of God is real, but God's love is greater, and he is there even in our worst moments. You can't get rid of him. That's who God is. That's the incredible good news of Genesis and the whole Bible and the gospel in particular. So God says to him a word of grace. Says Cain, he doesn't say to him, I've seen your picture in the post offices. You're a murderer. You're terrible. He comes to him and says, Cain, where is your brother? What a gracious word. Where is your brother? And then what happens? We find the answer is arrogant and snotty. Cain says, uh, he uses a word never used for people. Uh, keeping is, ne you never keep people, you keep animals, you keep livestock. So what he says is, how should I know? Am I that shepherd's shepherd? Which is wising off to God, maintaining his innocence. You see, that's what you do. You wise off, you get cool. The guiltier you get, the cooler you get, I guess. So he's being cool with God and saying, oh, how should I know? Sin in its essence, or one of its essences, sin, is the pretense of innocence. Last week we heard God say to Adam, Eve, what have you done? Well, it wasn't my fault. It was the woman you sent. Now he says, well, how should I know? Am I the shepherd's shepherd? And we find that as you live long enough and get wise enough, uh, the way to reverse some of this is to be responsibly guilty. Some poignant words I discovered years ago from John Steinbeck, one of my favorite writers who writes about the human predicament are these. He said, the last clear statement of gallantry in my experience, I heard in the state prison, a place for two-time losers, all lifers. In the yard, an old and hopeless convict spoke as follows. The kids come up here and they bawl how they wasn't guilty or how they was framed or how it was their mother's fault or their father was a drunk. Us old boys tell them, Kid, for God's sake, do your own time. Let us do ours. You see, what they're saying is there's no health in blaming somebody else or maintaining your innocence. When you can begin to own your guilt, you begin the long voyage home. So here we find the problem beginning. You see, to be responsible before God, you've got to be responsible for your brother. To come to God and say, God, I love you. He says, where is your brother? Where's your brother in Seattle? Where's your brother in Cambodia and Central America? We cannot say, am I my shepherd, that shepherd's shepherd? We say, Lord, yes. 
to, to answer God is to be responsible for the brother and sister around us in the world. So he's a murderer. So the law, you know, we've said that the great, the two great themes all through Genesis are interwoven like a great harmony. Law and grace, law and grace, law and grace, and belief and unbelief. Those are the, the two themes. So here comes the law. A man is a murderer. The first one of the first men's a murderer. So he's banished. He is banished from that ground and from the face of the Lord. And, and yet God's love goes with him. Uh, I read a year ago when I was doing my study leave in Hawaii, I read the Honolulu Advertiser one morning. It told there about a man who had committed a murder. And the, the Samoan family of the murdered man had a traditional, it said, ceremony of forgiveness. I thought, I don't know what that is. I'd love to find out. So the family of the murdered man has a, has a traditional ceremony of forgiveness, forgives the murderer, but the judge says, nevertheless, he must serve one and a half years in prison and then parole for five or ten. Even though you are forgiven by the people you've offended, even though you've offended God, the law is there, so he's banished. But then we find when he's banished, Cain says, Sir, I cannot live in banishment. I will be pursued. I will be killed. I'm, I'm away from your face. And that's what hell is. Hell is to be away from the presence of God. And no one is sent from the presence of God, you see, uh, lightly. So here, here is Cain saying, What will I do? And God says, No. My love will go with you, even though you are a murderer. I will put my mark on you, lest anyone touch you. When they see that, they will know that if they harm you, the vengeance of mine will be sevenfold. He banishes him and sends him out with grace. And I thought about you and me. You and I have God's mark on us. If you are a believer, the blood of Jesus Christ is on you. When you have done the worst possible thing you can think of, and I hope you don't, but if you have... The mark of Jesus Christ is on you. The blood of Christ is there. And we have God's mark. Grace is always there, even when we break the law. When I was at Whitworth last week for the board meeting, I met our new dean of students, Julie, who happens to be a, a product of this church here, a marvelous woman. And students there told me about Julie that when she, as the dean of students, must administer the law, and they're caught with some infraction of dormitory living, you know, sex or booze or something like that, and they're off base, they come in there. And they said, you know, when, when she must administer the law, but when she's not sure about the culpability, for example, there were five men that were involved in something, she said, okay, you've got to do five hours of garbage detail. She went out and did it with them. Or one student who was a, a young woman was expelled for two weeks. That's what the law says. So she expelled her for two weeks, could not be on the campus for two weeks, but she came to live in the dean of students' home after those two weeks. You see, that's law and grace. That's living as Jesus lives, as God lives. The law must be kept, but grace is there to say, I am with you in your time of trouble. I heard about two brothers who were um, in a sheep herding village, and when they were young men, they both were caught stealing sheep. And the, the punishment then they gave them was to brand them ST on their forehead, a living brand that said uh, sheep uh, thief. Well, one man fled the village and he went his whole life from village to village. When people found out what that meant, he was in disgrace. He went on. He lived an outcast. The other man stayed in his hometown. He paid back the debts. He tried to be a responsible, loving, caring person. And the story was that when he was a very old man, loved by everybody, a stranger came to town and said, what is that ST on his forehead? And someone said, well, I don't know. It happened many, many years ago, 
and I'm not sure of the circumstances, but I think it means saint. <laughs> you see, you live with a brand, and yet God says, I can turn that brand into something very powerful, and that's good news. Now, what does it all mean? What does it mean now, the explanation for this, this beautiful description of life? Worship is not the issue here. You see, both of these men are believers. They're not worshiping things. They're not worshiping a family. They're not worshiping success, careers, money. They're worshiping God authentically. And so that can't be the issue because both are believers. Is the nature of the sacrifice the issue? Well, I don't think so. Some say, well, uh, the Bible says there's no remission of sin apart from the shedding of blood. So Cain comes with his offering from the land. You know, here Abel had a sheep on the altar, and Cain had, what, maybe 27 bushels of zucchini squashed. We don't know what he had, but he had something he raised. I do not think it is the nature of the, of the object. Because in, the, in, in latter days, the, the Israelites, they came to the altar. Uh, they weren't all ranchers or, or, or uh, animal husbandry people. So if you were a farmer, you could buy a turtle dove. You could buy a sheep. You could buy a goat. You could buy. So I can't believe that ranchers have it over the cattle or over the farmers. I don't. Be, furthermore, in Psalm 51:16, it says that uh, I despise your burnt offerings. And burnt offerings are okay, provided something else is there. I don't think it's the nature of the sacrifice. Was it too little? Was was uh, Cain's offering too small? I don't think so. We know the widow's might seem to thrill Jesus. The smallest amount you can give. Like the young man who was hired by a firm and his employer said, now we have a policy here. We don't uh, talk about our salary to others here. Oh, the young man says, don't worry. He says, I won't talk about it. I'm as ashamed of my salary as you are. <laughs> I don't think it was too little. Or was it too much? Was it too much? Barnabas sold a piece of land, brought the whole thing and said, here, use this for God's work. So we have examples of very little, very much. I don't think it's that. The key has to be in the attitude. God knows what is in the heart of the giver. We can suspect, but God knows. You see, perhaps uh, if, if uh, Cain gave much more than Abel, he had pride and said, I'm a better man than Abel. Maybe he did give too much possibility. After all, Judas said when they poured the ointment over Jesus' feet, he said, now, wait a minute, we have a thing here. We care about the poor. That's very wasteful. And you can get a whole hierarchy of who are the tithers and the double tithers and who cares more for the poor. And that's grace plus. So I don't think the amount is the thing. Uh, it's the new law like Eve had. Eve said you can't even touch the tree, you remember, which is not true. Or maybe he gave less. Maybe he was just stingy. And maybe he said, well, how little can I give and get by? Like the question that was asked Bob Moore, what does it cost to belong to your church? And he said, nothing, which isn't quite true, but it came close, you know. But how little can I get by on? What's my share? When you say, what is my share? You're asking the wrong question. Now, maybe possibly he gave, Cain gave his offering to God to control him. Maybe to manipulate him, to say there are strings. Maybe that's why he came. See, God says what's wrong possibly is not how much or how little or the nature of your gift. It's why you're giving it. If you think you own me, Cain, it's not acceptable. You don't own me. There are no strings. I've known people in former congregations I've served who served God faithfully for years as teachers and elders, and I guess they were tithers, until the day tragedy hit. The day when a daughter was killed or a son was taken, or in one case, a son and a daughter were both killed in a car accident. And they left the church and apparently left the faith 
because they were giving all those years saying, now God will take care of us beyond other people. They were putting God in their debt. And when they didn't get their part of the bargain met, they, they quit. So if you go through life saying, I deserve it, reminds me of Jack Benny, one of my favorite 20th century comedians who got an award one time. And when he got the award, he said, well, I really don't deserve this award. But then he says, I have arthritis. I don't deserve that either. So I'll take it. <laughs> when you go through life saying, I deserve, I deserve, you've missed the whole thing. Maybe there's a clue in the names of these two men. The Bible gives you clues. The one was named Cain, which comes from Cana, which means uh, begotten, which means kind of longed for, begotten, loved. It also can mean uh, iron worker or spear. It's a strong name. Abel comes from Hebel, which means a slight breath or frail. The strong child, the frail child, the gifted child, the ordinary child. And how is it not possible for a parent to communicate to one child, wow, are you something? And to the other, well, we love you too. And what a tragedy for the one who is gifted to go through feeling that they are gifted. Oh, my goodness. Does that mean it's time to quit? Yes, sir. We'll try and make it fast. But see, maybe, maybe it, it has to do with, with the fact that the one who goes through life saying, I'm not really very much, which is a lie, but then comes and offers their gift of love to friends, to family, to, to God himself saying, thank you. Like the Macedonians we heard about this morning who said, please, take our gift. It's our pleasure. Can't we give more? We haven't much, but take what we've got. They were so thrilled to give to people in need where the one who is blessed says, aren't you lucky to have me as a giver? God says, no way. Now, I don't know what you make of this. But, you know, parents don't want children who are good to them waiting for the will to be drawn up. How will you divide the inheritance? Parents want children who say, I just like being with you, Mom and Dad. I want to be your friend. I don't care how you divide up the inheritance. Or all of us have had the common experience of being at two kinds of parties. Now, every time there's a party, the host and hostess are worshiping their guests. You prepare a sacrifice. You clean the house, I hope. You get your best china out and stuff, and you cook the best food you know, and you say, come into my house. Some hostesses and hosts that you and I know, when they have done this, they've let you know they have really worked hard to provide this for you. <laughs> and it's not much fun to be at their parties. Then there are people who work just as hard, who prepare for you, and when you come, they seem to say, aren't you wonderful to come and make a party at my house? Thank you for coming. What a privilege to have you all here. You see, be, each does the same thing, but behind one, there's the great spirit of privilege and joy and thanksgiving that I could make this sacrifice. Do you think God doesn't know the difference? Do you think he doesn't know why you and I are giving? He says, no, that won't do. Yes, Thank you. More, more. So how do we live like this? Stewardship is the key to life. The topic is don't give till it hurts. If you give till it hurts, it's costing you something it shouldn't. You're putting people or God in your debt. It's no go. Give till it stops hurting. Give until it no longer costs you anything. And you can say, oh, isn't this wonderful? God or my friends or my family are accepting my offering. I am so privileged. You know, God has given us the gift 
of birth and death, not to frighten or intimidate us, but so that we may have the opportunity to give time and money to him and to others sacrificially. If you were as rich as Bunky Hunt and had the endless life of a vampire, your giving wouldn't mean much. But most of us don't have very much time in this world or very many things in this world. So when out of your not-enoughness you begin to give to God and to others, that's what giving is all about. You give that which you don't have to say, but I love you, God, I love you, God's people. Uh, suppose the world, all the people in the world were reduced to a global village of 100 people. Think of this. Eighty of them would be unable to read. Only one of those people would have a college education. Fifty would be suffering from malnutrition and 80 will be found living in housing unfit for human habitation. In this same village of 100, six would be Americans who have one half of the entire income of the village, leaving the remaining 94 to exist on the other 50%. How do you come before God? And he says, where is your brother and sister? And you say, how do I know? I'm just busy making a living. To come before God responsibly, we say, I'm guilty. I could do more. I'd like to do more. Help me to do more. And God says, I certainly will. I discovered something amazing this week thinking about this message. Many years ago, when Hayes and I were quite poor, never missed a meal, but quite poor, we decided to give something we could not afford to her mother. On a trip to the Holy Land with some pilgrims, we bought a beautiful 18-karat gold Jerusalem cross, which we brought back and gave to Hazel's mother, and she wore frequently. A year later, I saw in a magazine a picture from Lindsborg, Kansas, of some people doing some Swedish folk dancing in the streets. I said, my mother would love that. I have never commissioned original art for myself. But I wrote to the artist and said, would you paint that picture again? May I buy it? And she did. So we gave this picture to my mother, who loved it. Her mother and my mother. This week, sitting, having coffee with Hazel in the morning in our kitchen, I saw her wearing the gold cross, because her mother is dead. And on the, the wall of our kitchen is the picture we couldn't afford to buy, which now resides in our home. And I thought to myself, maybe the, the house you will live in for eternity will be furnished with the things you've given away in this life. Think about that. All the things you've given away will come back. All the things you kept are going to be gone. That's why God says, listen, Start giving and giving and giving and storing up for yourself treasures in heaven. Well, an epitaph in Westminster Abbey, 1680, from the tomb of Christopher Chapman. He says, what I gave, I have. What I spent, I had. What I left, I lost by not giving it. Carlyle said, stewardship is what happens to mine because of what happened to me. And let me just say, that's the key to it. The key to stewardship is how you give away yourself, your time, your money to God, and in his name to family, friends, and strangers, and third world, and all the rest. The key is to stewardship is ownership. Who owns what you have? If you think you own it, you are like Cain, and then you dole out a portion of it. But if you know that your very life, your breath, your creativity, the fact that we're Americans, therefore privileged. All of this is the gift of God. We owe none of it. The question isn't, how much do you give God? 
It's how much do you keep of what he's given you. It's all his. How much do you keep for yourself and how much do you give back? 